Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewing on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. Um, your host, Stephen Sloan. My guest host is back with me, Rick Tullis. Welcome back, Hey, Rick. it's great to be back. You've grown so much I since thought I you, saw you, you last time. To the curb forever, but I've weaseled my way back. So I, I continue to exploit uh, Rick's networks, his social capital, and and he has drawn in a very special guest uh, that I'm excited about today. Rick, I'll let you introduce. Yeah, the guest. yeah, yeah. So, um, in fact, I I connected with him back when we were doing the uh, Crossroad series with some stuff, and realized, man, he's got some good stuff that really deserves to be its own podcast. So that's where we're here today. And so Ryan Holt, who's uh, City of Waco assistant manager, currently assistant city manager, assistant to the assistant city manager (laughs) to the regional. Uh, So um, is with us and I'm going to let him give, tell a little bit about himself, his, his pathway, his story. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's been able to do quite a bit in our community over the years. So Ryan. Sure. No, uh, really happy to be here. Appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to come in and Talk to you. Um, so I've been with the city uh, right at 28 years. Uh, started uh, as a uh, rookie uh, police officer in the in the Waco Police Department, mm-hmm. and uh, over the next 24 years uh, over there, uh, worked in just about every section of the department: um, patrol, detectives. Uh, I was part of. We started the computer crimes unit over there. Uh, worked on the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force, where I got to meet. Uh, the McNamaras, mm-hmm. um, when they were with the Marshal Service, um, a lot of fun work there. Uh, was on the SWAT team, hostage negotiator, uh, rose up through the ranks, um, ended up being an assistant chief for a number of years under uh, then Chief Brent Stroman. And uh, then in 2016, at the end of 2016, um, Dale Fissler, who was a city manager, clearly a bad judge of character, um, <laughs> chose me to be the chief of police. And uh, so I got to Finish out my career at Waco PD as the chief until um, I moved over to City Hall in February of 2020. Was still I was doing both roles: city manager, assistant city manager, and uh, police chief um, through August. Uh, but as you know, went over in February. Wow! And about two weeks later, the yeah. pandemic hit, uh, and um, fortunately, uh, Frank Ginch, who's one of the assistant uh, chiefs over there, stepped in and was interim chief for a while till we could hire the fantastic uh, Cheryl Victorian, uh, Dr. Cheryl Victorian, yeah. who's, the, who's the chief now. So uh, Now, did you grow up in Waco? No, grew up in uh, Bryan, Texas, just just down the road, okay. about 90 miles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, Downstream. Uh, yep. Finished my undergraduate degree over at uh, Stephen F. Austin in Nacogdoches in criminal justice mm-hmm. and uh, applied at several departments, and Waco hired us first. And so uh, we came here, my wife and I, and... Um, 
Uh, I've been here ever since. This is home now. Great. And so were, were you a kid who grew up knowing you wanted to be in law enforcement? No, nope, never considered it. Uh, yeah. Nobody in our family is in law enforcement. I did a, a, a Citizens Pol- Police Academy when I was a senior at Bryan High School. Hmm. Uh, and I left that and I went to A&M because uh, I lived in Bryan College Station. So I started at A&M as a business major and hated it. Uh-huh. Um, then I uh, went to uh, journalism. I was a print photographer back when we used to film, um, and both in high school and then in college. It's kind of how I paid my way was as a print photographer. Um, and ultimately uh, at A&M, didn't, I, I knew I couldn't make a living doing journalism. And uh, as it turns out, so I went over to sociology and got a little bit of a taste uh, around criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, A&M didn't offer criminal justice. Uh, there were uh, only three universities in, in the state at the time, okay. uh, Stephen F., Sam Houston, and what was then Southwest Texas State University. Um, and I knew I wanted to do law enforcement because uh, I, as I was looking around trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a young kid, uh, I had remembered my time in that Citizens Police Academy at, yeah. at Bryan Police Department. And... Um, uh, you know, uh, Stephen F. Austin had the had the criminal justice program that was more centered around law enforcement. Sam Houston was more around corrections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so went over there. Absolutely loved Stephen F. Uh, finished my undergraduate over there and uh, and came over here. There you go. Yeah. And now, Ryan, we were talking about this because, and I'll tell you a little back. I mean, Ryan has done a lot of research uh, into the history of Waco PD. Um, really dug up some stuff that was unknown as he got into the art. So he's in, so he's a historian also. He he doesn't have the the degree in that, but he's a historian by practice and the research that he's done. But now your role is you're over a lot of different city services, sure. right? Yeah, and you were telling me the other day. Yeah, so I've got police and fire, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, information technology, fleet, uh, which is all the vehicles in the city, in the city garage, mm-hmm. uh, facilities. Um, I've got uh, animal services, uh, the, the animal shelter, the joint venture, but with the uh, Humane Society of Central Texas. And then I've also got the, a fairly new safety program uh, that we've rolled out uh, in the city. So around okay. seven, seven departments of the 26 uh, or so departments we have. Wow. So we could do an episode on every <laughs> one of those. <laughs> no doubt. Departments we could, no doubt. In the 1800s, what was uh, animal safety? Uh, what were they doing back then? It was a little different. <laughs> yeah, was it? Yeah, okay. it was a little yeah. different. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, Ryan, I'd, I'd love to start with you just talking a little bit about why you did all this research. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's not like you didn't have plenty to do, uh, but I mean, what's what's developed out of this? And and Rick and I got a firsthand experience of this is a is a very nice little museum that's been developed over at the tower at the police tower. And uh, I mean, it's amazing what came what all came from this research. But I'm interested in why you got interested in doing it. Yeah, so uh, so the museum actually started under Chief Brent Stroman, okay, uh, and they formed a museum committee, and it kind of started when they were trying to get the um, the memorial along the river for I officers see. killed in the line of duty, and so the museum committee did a lot of really great research. Uh, unfortunately, for for information before 1900, they latched onto an undergraduate history project that just got it wrong yeah. uh, in, a, in a Baylor history class. And it was, I think it was over at the, the Waco Public Library. And as I got further into it, they just got, the, the undergraduate students just got the information wrong. And so, uh, but the museum committee had done a great job of gathering stuff up. And we've got an, a museum incubator over at the uh, police department now on the ninth floor that people can make an appointment to go see. 
Um, former Chief Brent Strowman is uh, working with a group to create, um, um, you know, a brick and mortar museum mm -hmm. as well. So mm -hmm. um, maybe I can forward along the uh, the the URL for that, and uh, folks can have access yeah. to that. Yeah, we can put that in the show notes. That's yeah, a great idea. Be, they're working on a public safety museum, so it wouldn't just okay. be Waco PD. But when I was chief. I started thinking, you know, you see the dates of the charters mm -hmm. of the city of Waco, and I thought, well, man, we must be coming up on a on a sesquicentennial. Mm -hmm. um, and I, 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 you know, I was thinking we'd do a special badge and a special patch and celebrate, you know, the length of time for the department. And and unfortunately, the further I got into it, uh, I realized uh, we had missed it, uh, you know, because uh, as it turns out, in the original charter uh, around eighteen forty seven ish eight up to 1856 uh they created the marshal mm -hmm. uh the, the town marshal and in the charters it designates the town the the city marshal is the de facto chief of police mm. um and so the way mm -hmm. the city was set up is that they created originally four wards um and so they had the city marshal and then the city council came together and was able to appoint a police what they called policemen back then uh, it's not appropriate now but policemen um, for one for each of the wards, and they reported to the uh, to the marshal as the de facto chief of police. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, you're just doing advance work for the bicentennial. You, yeah. you missed the sesquicentennial. Yeah, maybe. right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. he's a yeah. <clears throat> yeah, getting ahead on your on your work. That's good. I, I'm interested in the wards because you know we we've talked on the podcast. You know how people kind of imagine the different areas of the city, and, and what were the? Do you have a sense of what the wards were then? I've read it, but yeah. I, I can't. I okay. couldn't regurgitate it to you. You know, it, but it included East Waco as well across mm -hmm. the river. Yeah, uh, and, and back then that was a, a pretty big geographical barrier. Mm -hmm. uh, was that river? They had a ferry at the time. Right. Uh, when the water was low enough, it would cross. But it wasn't until the bridge was built that it really became, a, uh, you know, connected. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so they, so they had, you know, and the, and they had one policeman early on, they had one policeman for each of the wards. Well, mm -hmm. they couldn't work 24 hours. And so there were, <laughs> there were time of, but back then there was a pretty robust constable, uh, system locally in McLennan County. Uh, obviously the sheriff, the sheriff's office was, was pretty big at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so with, well, with sheriffs and constables and, uh, and then the the policemen and the city marshal uh, that that was the law enforcement and you had you had some of the frontier rangers around mm -hmm. here even if they weren't necessarily stationed here all the time. Okay, so explain the difference between a constable and a sheriff. So a you or know deputy the, sheriff. Yeah. They're a constable and sheriff are both uh, constitutional offices in the state of Texas, and the the high sheriff in in Texas counties is the highest law enforcement. Uh, person in the in the um, in the county, constables now are attached to justice of the peace precincts, and they they serve. Uh, they have full um, a law enforcement authority and full law enforcement powers, okay. but their primary duty is to serve that that judicial branch in serving papers and providing security for the courts. Uh, but in Texas, there are a lot of cities where the constables have some of the largest. Uh, law enforcement agencies in the county. So if you mm. look at Harris mm. County, uh, they have a really robust constable system and they have hundreds of deputies. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and in Waco, uh, the constables are still around and they serve those those justices of the peace uh, in providing court security and court paperwork. And, mm -hmm. but, they all, but they all have 
full law enforcement uh, um, authority. And, and they are elected officials. Too. They are elected officials. Yes, yeah. uh, both the both the uh, sheriff and all the constables. Yeah, are elected but officials. but you have to be uh, a certified law. You have to be able to get it. So okay. you can be elected uh, before you're certified, but okay. you have to get it. And it's changed. It, it was two years. It may be one year now. Um, uh, through the years that that has changed. Okay. Of course, back in the day, you know, back in the day it was, you yeah. are, here's your badge, here's, <laughs> right. your, here's well, your gun. And we've often talked about, you know, we, we all think of McClendon County the way it is today. I mean, back then there were actually more people that lived in the County than actually lived in Waco because, right. it, because it was a rural farm type economy. Yeah. And uh, even Waco itself in this time period we're talking about the fifties and sixties, I mean, there were six to 10,000 people mm -hmm. in Waco mm -hmm. proper. So, uh, in the geographic footprint wouldn't be much bigger than what we think of as downtown now. Right. So, well, we're also talking about a period before civil service reform where it's a spoil system. I mean, whoever's elected gets the, mm -hmm. gets yeah. the jobs and gets to make the appointments. Yeah, and so. we see that in the trajectory of some of the, of some of the people who served early on, they go on to other offices. Mm -hmm. uh, Hollis Barron um, was the, was the chief between 1907 and 1914. He goes on to be the mayor. Um, and so occasionally you'll see a person in the, in the list of, of folks who goes on to, to other, other offices. And it's, it's hard to imagine, but, but there were other people sort of walking in the area at the time you had, you know, Lawrence Sullivan Ross, who, who was a sheriff. And so, that, you know, Ross was, was working with Waco, uh, the Waco marshals. Um, you know, so, uh, Pat Neff ends up appointing some of the, some of the uh, folks from Waco to be Texas Rangers. And mm -hmm. so there's all these connections around, mm -hmm. um, and, and obviously, um, with the Rangers, the history of the Rangers, uh, locally, there's, there's that connection as well. A number of, a number of, um, of the city officials had been Rangers or go on to be Rangers or special Rangers. And, uh, after the civil war, there were a lot of individuals who had served in in the Civil War, uh, frankly, on both sides, um, who became city marshals. And there's some interesting stories uh, involved mm -hmm. in those, those those people. And that one of the things that interested me most is it's almost impossible for people to imagine what Waco was like at the time, but this really was the frontier. Mm -hmm. um, and so it took a certain type of person to, right. to decide to be the city marshal. Uh, and some of them were killed. Uh, yeah. in, in, uh, strange ways. And, and I just discovered another one, uh, earlier this week that had been a, um, a newspaper. Um, he had, he'd run the, uh, the Brazos Statesman as the publisher. And he ended up, he, he served a very short time as the city marshal, um, in addition to being the publisher, but he gets murdered. Uh, J.O. Shook gets murdered by one of his printers, uh, uh, working on the paper. And so I just discovered that this week. And so hmm. there's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down of interesting stories about, I mean, these were, these were individuals of particular constitution to, to step right. out in, in really lawless times. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, y'all have talked about it on your podcast, the, the sheer volume of, of duels that mm -hmm. were newsworthy uh, but there were a significant other number of duels and right. you know murders and and that sort of thing. And so to be to be the law, so to speak, um, during that period of time was uh, took a certain type of person, and, well, and you, they weren't always nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and the people, um, 
yeah, coming out to the frontier. I mean, a lot of them were seeking the betterment of their lives, or, you know, immigrants and otherwise, but a lot of them were running from something right. and running, you know, to where there was not a lot of uh, government control or, yep. or uh, whatnot. So, uh, yeah, it would be a very, um, uh, it'd be a calling to want to be a law enforcement at that point to try to bring order. Yep. Um, I know your research, Ryan, kind of added to the list of chiefs uh, yep. going going back. I think to the the the, the founding. Yeah, we yeah. so uh, at the police department they had uh, done research back to uh, uh, Alfred C. Neal was kind of who everybody thought was the first chief of police, so to speak. Uh, and I've been able to go back and find about another ten uh, marshals uh, before Alfred Neal. Um, uh, back, you know, and, and some of them didn't serve long. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but I felt like mm. I needed to put their name on the list because they, they put the badge on and they served as the marshal They're in, um, a lot of my research came from handwritten council notes mm-hmm. from 1856. Um, how's their handwriting by the way? Uh, it was, it was interesting. It's, uh, you know, the cursive they used, uh, and, and, you know, generally when you when you got to where you could read one person's handwriting, they'd change the person, uh, and sometimes they'd spell phonetically instead of instead of the way it was, and they'd start a word on one line and go to another, and so you almost get into a rhythm in transcribing those old records because you you kind of get into their style of writing, right. and occasionally you'll get a word and you're like, I do not, I cannot get this word, and so you go back and look for for the way they do their L's and their R's and their E's and other words. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I just went back uh, last week and looked at the, um, the Waco bridge company charter mm-hmm. um, uh, act that was passed by the state legislature uh, because that touches one of our, one of our marshals um, and it's handwritten. Uh, and, and some of the other documents about the time were really crisp and legible. Right. And, and that, that document looks like it was written in pencil uh, in very, I mean, really small, uh, cursive. And mm-hmm. so it took me a little while to, uh, to transcribe that one. Uh, but it was, it was sort of pertinent to one of the marshals and some of the work they did. Well, you know, you can, now you can just hold your phone up to it and it'll, well, it'll transcribe it I don't for know. you. Not very well. Yeah. I'm not sure AI has joined us, uh, for, for that kind of work. Yet. Okay. All right. <laughs> Well, talk about this. I'm interested in this early period. I mean, you've you made some important uh, discoveries there that that you know. I think of the in memoriam wall that you showed us, yeah. and even as we think about the makeup of the force, diverse diversity over time. Share some of the findings you shared with us earlier this week. Yeah. So you know the first the first documented um, marshal that I can find uh, is a guy named L. H. Johnson. And something else I discovered is back in that time in these documents, they only use the first two initials and the last yeah. name, yeah. uh, very often. And, mm-hmm. and you, and, and so it's almost, it's almost like a, uh, an Easter egg when in a later document, you see their name completely written out and you're like, Oh, okay. And so you go right. back and, and update all your files from the, uh, from the, the initials. But the, the first guy, LH Johnson was the marshal. And, and this was in October of 1856. So, right when they're, when the city leaders are mm-hmm. putting together that first charter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's an interesting charter to read uh, because this is all pre-Civil War. Uh, this is, um, you know, right in the middle of all the cotton uh, world at the time. 
uh, and a guy named L.H. Johnson. He uh, and all we have is in the uh, council notes. He he shows to be uh, uh, marshal, and then he resigns, October fifteenth, eighteen fifty six. Uh, interestingly, that's where we transition to a guy named H.A. Hockaday, uh, and he lasts about a year. Uh, so, uh, and there's, hmm. at least right now, we, we don't find reasons, you know, why they, why they don't last very long, but uh, you can certainly imagine. Um, and he's, he's the, uh, the marshal through 1859. And then a guy, and, and, and these people were, were other things. Mm-hmm. Before and after sure. they were the marshal, you mm-hmm. know. And so um, back then, a lot of people were carpenters. Uh, there were some printers. And uh, so it was interesting to see uh, in those in those 1850, 1860, 1870 census records what people put as their as their occupation. Sometimes they would put their alternate occupation in the census when we know they were the marshal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would list carpenters. So clearly they were... They were of the mind that they thought of themselves as a carpenter. They were just serving as the marshal. Mm-hmm. So, so were there any standards at the time? Did, was it the state or any other agency providing any? So the only thing that, that I can find is that you had to take an oath of office and they had to send that oath of office uh, to, um, to, the, to the governor's office. And, it, and y'all have talked a little bit about it before on your, uh, on your podcast. One of, the, one of the things you had to swear to was that you hadn't um, been in a duel before. Yeah. Uh, and so I happen to have a copy of one of the, um, of Laban James Hoffman's, um, and I was going to quote the, is that there it, it is. His oath of office. Yeah. yeah. Um, so says, I do solemnly swear to affirm that I'll faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all duties incumbent on me as Marshal of Waco, McLennan County, Texas, according to the best of my skill and ability, I will support the constitutional laws of the United States and of this state. I do further swear or affirm that since the acceptance of the, of this constitution by the Congress of the United States, I being a citizen of this state have not fought a duel with a deadly weapon or committed an assault upon any person with deadly weapons or sent or accepted a challenge to fight a duel with a deadly weapon or acted as a second in fighting a duel or knowingly aided or assisted any of us offending uh, either within this state or out of it that I am not disqualified and so on and so right, on. But right. it was about that duel. Um, so other than promising that you haven't committed crimes and haven't, um, and haven't participated in a duel, it was, you know, are you living, breathing, and willing to, and to probably, wear the badge? Do you own a gun? Yeah. <laughs> probably yeah. had to provide you bring probably your had to bring own, your own, the own tools of the job. Yeah. yeah, a horse. Uh, which is interesting because in my research, so a guy named uh, Laban James Hoffman becomes marshal in right at 1870, right after the Civil War. and Which was a golden time. In, yeah, in, yeah in it was time. interesting. It's right before the bridge, right yeah. before the railroad. Yep. I mean, that was all right then. Yeah, right before him, there was a guy named James Thatcher Lovejoy, but he was a Reconstruction marshal. So mm-hmm. he was installed by the federal government at the time. And he, uh, there's a pretty good record where he and his posse uh, which uh, by some accounts are Union soldiers, mm-hmm. um, kill a couple of guys named the Grimes boys uh, in town because they were making too much noise, essentially. Uh, they're buried in the First Street Cemetery, hmm. uh, have big family around here. So James Thatcher Lovejoy was, had been a major in the Union Army, 
during Reconstruction, Union soldiers stationed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there are some accounts that he, he liked to harass uh, people who had fought for the Confederacy. And so, um, you know, whether it was, there's some stories from, uh, from the law side of things that, you know, that the, the, the Grimes boys fought um, the, the marshal and, and the soldiers. And then of course there's a, there's a written account from the Grimes family. And so you, as you can imagine, it was a different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so there, there's the Grimes boys get killed, uh, and a mob forms. And if not for the union soldiers that were stationed here, uh, and one of the Grimes, Grimes's fathers intervenes and says, no, we've had enough bloodshed. Uh, in the Civil War, uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna shed more blood. Mm. Uh, but so uh, Lovejoy lasts uh, a couple of years, and then there's a shift in. Uh, there's starting to be a shift in politics uh, at the state level, mm-hmm. um, and a guy named Laban Jane, John Hoffman comes around. Now Hoffman had been in the state police, and for a period of time after the Civil War, uh, Texas formed the state police. And there were actually as many as 40% of the state police officers were African-American. It was very integrated. Um, and at the time, the, the Texas Rangers, the Frontier Rangers, had been sort of disbanded um, at the time and were not really uh, back to what we would consider as the Rangers. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of violence, uh, mob violence, and up in Hill County, just north of us, um, the, uh, the, the governor ends up declaring martial law, uh, in and around, uh, Hillsboro, uh, a small community outside of Hillsboro and Laban John Hoffman was the state policeman, uh, that they sent to Hill County. Mm. And there was, uh, a couple of murders and, uh, the mob tried to intervene with the, uh, with the state police and there's, mm-hmm. there's letters. I've got letters that uh, Hoffman wrote back to the governor's office saying, you know, we need help. Our posse's not enough. Um, and so ultimately the governor declares martial law in Hill County. It's a, it's a very interesting story. You can go way down rabbit holes uh, with, with all the stories and all the sides of the stories about whether it was lawful or not. Ultimately, a local judge ends up putting a warrant out for the lawmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, sort of a counter posse uh, from the locals up there uh, had had chased down the lawmen and it took the governor providing pardons and um, because this local judge had issued warrants for their arrest. So um, Hoffman uh, comes to Waco. He's stationed in Waco, in and around Waco anyway. And on September 5th of 1870, he takes the oath of office for uh, to be the uh, to be the marshal in te- in Waco after uh, Thatcher had left a few months before. And um, so Hoffman, you know, he's doing his thing. Clearly he's got a history. Uh, and early in the morning of uh, January 5th, 1870. Um, now he was, uh, well, I'm sorry, that was, that was the wrong one. Um, he was killed. One at 71. You said he was appointed yeah. in 70, right? Yeah. So yeah. he was appointed in, um, oh, uh, September 5th, 1870. And he's murdered by the end of the year. And he's sitting in a, uh, he's getting his, uh, he's getting a shave down at the corner of what would now be second and Franklin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it says around noon, city, city Marshal Hoffman was in a barber shop. They called it the southwest corner of the square and second, okay. which would now be around second and Franklin and getting a shave. Yeah. An unidentified man rode up on horseback, dismounted, entered the barber shop from the rear. He examined the leathered face of the marshal to make sure it was Hoffman. He walked behind the barber's chair and shot the marshal in the back of the head, killing him instantly. The man remounted and fired two shots at approaching policemen. As the, men, as the man galloped to the bridge, he tossed the toll collector a dollar and said, haven't time to wait for the change, and sped away. Wow. Classic movie scene there, yes, too, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, it's also respective of journal, you know, reflective of journalism of the period, how flowery. No doubt. Yeah. So at the time, there was a guy uh, that some of you all may have heard of named John Wesley Harden. Yeah. Uh, who is reported to be one of the most violent uh, mm. outlaws of uh, in Texas history, yeah. um, and I had I had never really known, but he he had been in the area about that time up in Hill County, as a as a matter of fact. Gotcha. Um, and so we don't know if he crossed paths with uh, with Hoffman when he was up there serving as a state policeman. Ultimately, they they charged two people with uh, Hoffman's death. One is a guy named George Thomason, alias Wild George. I think he was the, the trigger man, <laughs> so to speak. Of course. You don't get, you don't get that moniker. For, yeah. You, you know, got to earn it. You got Wild yeah. George. You're uh, a long way from Wild Rick. And uh, they, uh, they, uh, Texas governor Davis, Edmund Davis, uh, posted a thousand dollar reward for the de delivery of, uh, of Wild George dead or alive. Uh, and so, uh, George Thomason gets uh, mortally wounded um, during that chase uh, related to to that murder of, of Laban Jane Hoffman, who was the uh, first police officer in Waco to be killed in the line of duty. Mm. Well, uh, John Wesley Harden gets some of the blame. Uh, there's not a clear connection there. Right. Uh, but a warrant is put out for his arrest as well. And he gets arrested and ends up breaking out of the um, away from the the police officers who had him over in East Texas, um, and goes on the run later on. Which you know, which we talked a little bit about some of that story mm -hmm. earlier. Uh, yeah, so he had two state police officers. Yep. They were escorting him back. Yep. And I mean, he was like seventeen or eighteen at the time. Yep. He was, Edward Stakes and Jim Smalley were the police officers. Right. And they and I guess they were going to camp for the night or mm -hmm. something. And the one of the officers went off to get firewood or something and Harden had a gun yep. secreted somewhere on his body and uh, pulls it out, shoots the guy who was still guarding him and rides off. So Harden, you know, he goes on to a, actually a long career in, yeah. in, in as an outlaw, mm -hmm. uh, ends up writing a biography later in years. And, and historians disagree about what, what is true or not true in his biography and what is, uh, you know, uh, just pontification and sure. uh, grandiose uh, stories, but he swears he didn't kill Laban Jane Hoffman mm -hmm. and didn't have anything to do uh, with it later on. Yeah. But it is it is a connection, and 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 uh, and while George, you know, probably had some connection to him um, at the time, but uh, for a long time there was documentation that John Wesley Harden was the shooter. Mm -hmm. uh, but but we know we know pretty well, pretty pretty accurately that. That it was uh, it was uh, Wild George. Uh, I was able to find I was able to find uh, Hoffman's um, uh, payroll uh, stubs from the state of Texas for being oh. in the state uh, state police. And then interesting to to sort of muddy the story a little bit. It turns out that Laban John Hoffman might not have been as squeaky clean as uh, as figure. some people might imagine. 
So there was a, a law firm named Flint, Chamberlain, and Graham, attorneys at law and real estate agents in Waco, Texas. And on December 23rd, before the marshals murdered, they write a, te- a, a letter, a handwritten letter to the governor, uh, Davis, in Austin. Uh, and clearly they've written him before. They say, I wrote you sometime uh, in the past uh, about Laban James Hoffman, city marshal, and stated that uh, there were indictments against him and he could not reflect credit on your administration. I now include a copy of an indictment from uh, the district clerk of Ellis County. There are two also pending in Neal County on which uh, a no prosecution was entered at the court term of the, of the clerk because there had been a charge of district attorney and no prosecution had been made for the trial. I have no feeling in this matter, but I do know that Hoffman can reflect no credit on the appointing power. All the city of Waco wants is good and efficient and honest uh, law enforcement, your humble servant, Mr. J. Flint. And so mm-hmm. sure enough, uh, I was able to get in the archives, the state archives, and I found where uh, he had been indicted, where Hoffman had been indicted in Ellis County in the district court now he had been indicted for activity a couple of years before in uh, 1867. So that would have been right, you know, as the right in the middle of reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so some would argue, well, maybe yes, maybe not, but, but regardless, and don't forget they had put a warrant out for these lawmen up in Hill County Mm -hmm. uh, because they were discharging their lawful duties. So, uh, but the, he had been indicted, it says the grand jurors within uh, the county of Ellis, duly elected, tried, impaneled, sworn, and charged to the inquiries in for the body of the county, uh, do indict Laban James Hoffman, late of said county, with force and arms in the county and state aforesaid on the seventh day of October, this year of our Lord, 1,867, without consent of Virginia Rawson, the owner thereof, with, with intent to defraud, he did deface the brand of our mayor. Mayor, M-A-R-E, the horse, uh, the same not being then in their property of said Laban James Hoffman. So back then, uh, changing the brand yeah, on a horse was a felony offense. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's high crime right and there. And so, so it's hard to argue, you know, that... Well, and historically, was, the, yeah, like you're discussing, there was a fine line between criminal and law enforcement elements. And pe- right. I mean, I'm not saying that's that way today, uh, but, but there's... Probably personality wise, there's probably some, some, uh, not a big difference uh, between, uh, you know, crossing right. that line. Ryan, you can refute, refute that. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> he just made a dramatic connection to now. I'm saying yeah. historically. Well, I'm saying historically. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it, it can be a fine line for sure. Certainly back then, like, you know, like we were talking about earlier, this was the old West. Yeah. Um, and it took a certain type of person to, to stand up. For some of these things yeah um and and a lot of times they didn't they weren't genteel about it they didn't go to finishing school uh before they were selected as the as the marshal in the yeah. old west because uh, they would not have necessarily been very effective uh during that time you know had they been those kinds of folks well and they, they uh, didn't sure. have a system standing behind them I mean, right yeah, I mean, yeah civil rights yeah. probably wasn't much of a thing then yeah Yes, for sure. Well, no, yeah. we, we see that, you know, Waco's got a long history uh, of that. Um, and I've always argued that uh, the police force, both now and then, is merely the f- public facing uh, arm of the local government. Yeah. And so 
whatever is going on in the local government at the time is generally what you see from the police forces. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was certainly true back then. And, and you kind of see it now, even post civil service, mm-hmm. um, because the, you know, police officers like to say, well, we're not impacted by politics. But the reality is that most chiefs of police, certainly in the state of Texas, are appointed by city managers or whoever the executive is of the of the um, the city or town, and that city manager is usually works at the at the behest of the city council, who yeah. are elected officials. And so, so when when people say uh, police aren't affected by politics, um, it's uh, we like to think that. And the reality is yeah. that the individual officers are not necessarily because they have civil service protection, but the chiefs are are absolutely um, touched by politics in some ways. Well, and even thinks back then, there probably wasn't a uniform code of law from no. the state. And yeah. so every community was writing their own laws. Yeah. Well, and they would say, you know, they would say, uh, and you see it later in, in the next gentleman we're going to talk about, the city says, you know, go enforce this. And it's up to the marshal to figure out how to enforce that. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes it, you know, it violence met violence. Um, and uh, there was a, I ran across one of the handwritten um, council notes uh, back in the 1850s that talked about building the first jail. And they called it a huskow or a calaboose. They mm-hmm. called it a calaboose. And they described it how as How do you a, spell that? Calaboose. <laughs> yes. That's how you spell it. Okay. Uh, C-A-L-A-B-O-O-S-E. Uh, that's how they spelled it yeah, in the yeah, document. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Calibers. Yeah, and, and that comes from the, the Hispanic word mm-hmm. uh, for prison or dungeon. And uh, they described it as a two-story log building. And you entered on the second floor. And there was a square hatch in the middle of the second floor that you lowered the prisoners down into mm-hmm. so that there was no way out of that first floor. There were no windows or, or doors on that first floor. Uh, and the city, uh, there's a, there's a council, council notes, uh, talking about them deciding to, uh, they had, they formed a committee as you know, we always do. Uh, and they, they recommended back <laughs> to the, the city outside council. consultant. Cause that's what you always do I think too. Capstone built that originally. <laughs> um, but, uh, so they, they built a calaboose, uh, and, uh, and there was, I think, I'm trying to remember it was $2,500 or something. It was a significant amount of money, uh, but that was their first city jail. Now mm-hmm. there had been a, a, a county jail for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, but that was their first city jail. And so that tells you that, that they're starting to have that need. Uh, so to, I just want to reiterate that design because it's a little bit out of a horror movie. Yeah. I mean, it, so there's a first floor with no, the only access or, or, any opening in the first yeah. floor is in the ceiling Yes, where they would raise and lower prisoners down into the first floor. Yep. So, but yeah. not impervious, right? It's not a, it's yeah, not as a, it turns out, yeah. there was actually a uh, breakout, um, early on the daughter of one of the prisoners secreted a gun in and, um, and pulled it on the uh, policeman who was serving as the, the jailer at the time and broke her daddy out. Um, and so there was actually a jailbreak uh, from there. So, mm-hmm. you know, once again, the, the gun ruled the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. Now, um, I don't know if this is the place to talk about your research that discovered when the force integrated, which I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. Uh, you know, originally the, um, 
all of the research showed that C.F. Franklin was the first African-American officer in, uh, I believe, 1945. Uh, but I've been able to find a, a written document from, and I'm just looking for it here real quick. Eight, I know it was uh, 1871. Here it is. And on June 12th, 1871, uh, B.F. Harris, the mayor, called a meeting of the city council. The object of the meeting was explained by the chair to be for the appointment and, sec uh, and secretary of one colored policeman. William Prince was nominated and unanimously confirmed the council had adjourned at 5 o'clock p.m. Okay. So the first documented uh, African-American police officer on mm -hmm. June 12, 1871. It was William Prince is the name. William Prince. Okay. And before now, we, we didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so that's important history. Um, and of course it goes back to people were used to at the time with the state police, you know, as much as 40% of that force was, was African-American. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, it turns out that it was integrated and, and it ebbed and flowed through time yeah, you sure. know, as, as long as politics yeah. came and went. Sure. And, and, uh, but, but there was one of the things that I've, I've discovered in my research is that, uh, it turns out that, that some of these folks, were doing it for the right reason and they they were fighting for the right things and they stood up to uh to mob violence and that you know waco has this long history of of people not standing up to mob violence mm -hmm. but uh, i've got uh, more than a couple of um researched uh situations where there were individuals who stood up and, and did the right thing uh, and in the case of a of a guy who would become uh, uh a texas ranger he started out as a Waco policeman and then went to be a sheriff's deputy and then went to and saved the, the sheriff's life during a, a riot with the KKK uh, down in Lorena. He goes on to be a, uh, a um, Texas Ranger appointed by Pat Neff and then comes back to Waco and ends up being the police chief in the late 1940s up to 1950, a guy named Marvin Red Burton, mm -hmm. uh, which a lot of people have, have heard about. And there's a chapter in the book, uh, Just One Riot, about uh, that, that one of the authors did about the Texas Rangers. Uh, but he, he and the sheriff stood up to um, a crowd of between 3,000 and 10,000 people, depending on which story you read. And, mm -hmm. and it wasn't just standing up because they were shot and stabbed. Um, and then the story goes that uh, he was able to bring this uh, Sheriff Buchanan back to Waco uh, with the help of some Waco policemen um, one of the Waco policemen that assisted them was a, a guy named Wiley Stem Sr., whose uh, grandson, uh, well, a lot of his family ended up working for the city of Waco through the years. I've had the pleasure of working for uh, Wiley Stem III. Uh, Wiley Stem Sr. Uh, gives uh, Red Burton his 45 as they're huddled in a, in a uh, store down in uh, Lorena, and and we have that 45 in the police museum. Mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, Burton uses that 45 to hold off the crowd, gets Buchanan back to Waco. The next morning, uh, the mob has decided they're going to kill uh, Red Burton. And he uh, walks out into the crowd, and there's, there's several documented uh, stories about it that he puts a 12-gauge under his coat, walks out and faces all of the citizens uh, eye to eye, knowing that he probably was not going to make it back to there and makes a big circuit you know, throughout downtown, uh, and goes back and he faced down the crowd and they left him alone from there. And he goes on to be a, 
uh, a really sought after special ranger, uh, fought gambling and, uh, you know, during prohibition fought, uh, fought the liquor, um, that sort of thing as a special ranger comes back to Waco, um, runs for sheriff a couple of times and doesn't, doesn't become sheriff, uh, but ends up going back into law enforcement and becomes the police chief. Um, now at the end of his career, there's some, there's some issue that, uh, somebody, um, said that he had used prison labor, uh, illegally. And so he leaves office in 1950. Uh, but, but as far as, uh, colorful individuals and somebody who, mm-hmm. um, shows no fear mm-hmm. and was standing up for the right things, uh, mm-hmm. throughout his career, um, that that's, that's the kind of thing movies are made of, mm-hmm. you know, and that happened right here in, in Waco, Texas, um, connections to Pat Neff. Um, and, and these folks, you know, mm-hmm. were around, uh, Lawrence Sullivan Ross, uh, who was here, um, good and bad, you know, that it turns out these were, uh, human beings and they were flawed and they were gifted. Um, uh, but they, but, you know, they stood in the arena, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. to stand for the law at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't, it, you know, it was not always nice and it wasn't always pleasant. And there's clear oppression of, of, um, of different populations, uh, but you have to put it in the context of what was going on at the time and what they were capable of doing and standing up. And and there are a number of people who did stand up for mm-hmm. the right things. Yeah, you see that in the record, right? Uh, in the twenties, I mean, Waco had such a horrible history of of uncontrolled mm-hmm. mob violence, but you do see that in the in the twenties, where particularly after Jesse Thomas, there's a big effort on the part of Waco police to suppress that sort of justice. Yeah. And just the case y'all are talking about on, on, on some of your other podcasts, uh, Mitchell, Roy Mitchell, uh, I've got the, uh, the paper where the, the chief of police VF McCall calls for 22 Waco police officers notified for duty in the Mitchell case. Well, 22 officers was the department. That's everybody. (laughs) So they, they put the department on, you know, to, to right. resist mob violence because of that, that horrible history, uh, through the teens, uh, up, up to, up to this point in time. You um, know, so similar, a, a, a guy that would have been known to Burton at the time. I, I watched the movie, the costume movie, the movie the other night mm-hmm. about uh, Bonnie and Clyde, where he played Frank hammer. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I found in the record where hammer w- was sent here a couple times yeah. to, quell mob violence yep. because of some uh, court case going on. Uh, but but just looking into to Hammer a little bit more after after watching the movie, you know, probably like Burton and a lot of these other guys, I mean, they, they didn't do what you did. They didn't go to get a professional degree in right. yep. law enforcement. Usually they were a tough kid growing up and kind of may have been on one side or other of the law, but then get a break. Yeah. And, you know, get deputized by some little uh, law enforcement agency. Mm -hmm. And then that starts a career that leads to opportunities. Um, Well, and Hamer is represented in that movie as having a bright line in the sand of his where his ethics were. And um, and and that in a number of stories, we get that um, uh, for uh, for Red Burton because he starts out as a Waco policeman. And the story is that when when prohibition was put into place that some of the policemen would turn a blind eye to to liquor shipments and he wouldn't do it and so the 
the then chief said, Hey, if, if you, if you can't play along, then, then you're making it hard for me and I got to put you on a different shift. And he said, well, I'm not turning a blind eye. Hmm. And so the, the chief then puts him on a different shift. So then that's when he leaves and goes to work for McLean County Sheriff's Office, uh, Buchanan at the time, the sheriff. Gotcha. And a couple of years later was the Lorena riot. Right. And so he had a, he had that reputation as, and, and, and those folks can be hard to manage. You know, if, if you're the person, this is a chief. Hold on, is this a personal experience that we're talking about now? Well, uh, I'm just saying, you know, if you can imagine yeah. uh, somebody who wears that on their shoulder, um, uh, and you know, because there's there's a spectrum uh, for a lot of people, but he his was a bright line in the sand, and right. and by all accounts, that's why the the charges at the end of his career that he was somehow breaking the law don't fit with the rest mm. of his career, and you wonder how much politics played into it. Uh, not that politics right. would ever get involved in <laughs> city government, Never. but um, you just wonder because it didn't match any mm. of the other uh, concrete examples uh, when he was, when, when his ethics shone bright and he stood up to both mob violence and, uh, you know, follow the law and, and all those things. And so it just, it doesn't fit and, but it's a rabbit hole. I'm going to go down and, and do more research on and, and see what we can find out. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So another guy that comes along in February of 1870 after after Hoffman is killed, a guy named uh, R.D. Compton, and Compton is the marshal for a long time. Um, he he takes his oath on um, on February the 10th. Got got his copy of of his oath. He's not originally from Waco, and and that's something that you know you sort of get as you're doing this is nobody was from Waco mm -hmm. at sure. the time. Yeah, Waco yeah. Was Every, so everybody good. was yeah. from somewhere else. You yeah. know, certainly Anglos were not, were not from Waco. And so, uh, Compton becomes the, um, the marshal. And one of the things, uh, that preceded that, you know, this is right after the civil war and there are two, um, uh, different stories about how general McPherson of the union army was killed at the battle of Atlanta. And one of the stories is that Compton um, and, and both of these guys were, were at the Battle of Atlanta. Um, the brigade that Compton was with um, was a local brigade. They were there at the Battle of Atlanta. There are a number of eyewitness accounts. It says Compton was the one that killed a McPherson. McPherson was the second highest ranking Union officer killed uh, in battle. Uh, and that Compton was the one that fired the fatal shot. Now there's another um, another uh, 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 eyewitness account from there that says mm -hmm. a guy named Robert Coleman from a different brigade um, was the one that fired the the final mm -hmm. shot. But whether he fought, fired the final shot or not, he was there. Uh, he had fought in the in the Battle of Atlanta, and so he comes back to Waco. Um, some revered um, uh, in in the Confederate Army, right? Um, loathed, uh, yeah, the loathed. Um, the union. He had turned down any kind of, uh, they tried to promote him a number of times based on that interaction where, where he allegedly killed McPherson. He kept turning that down. They said he was a man of, you know, uh, he, he was, he was humble about, about just everything. He didn't want to be there doing those things, but it was, it was the context of, of life at the right, time. Right. And so he comes back, uh, to Waco and, and is pretty, pretty quiet as a, as a, um, Marshall, except that there was this thing called the Waco Bridge Company. 
Hmm. And uh, so their charter said that uh, you couldn't have another bridge or ferry or crossing within five miles of their of their right. crossing. Uh, and it says they can run the ferry there on the at the low water point uh, until they get their bridge built, and and then they can charge a toll for the bridge. Well, apparently the bridge company took that to mean that they could keep people from from traversing lengthwise up and down the river for that same distance. And in Waco, uh, that portion of, of land on, on the west side of the river was set aside as a reserve uh, for city use. And so um, uh, the, the city council told Compton, you know, you've got to go and enforce our, you know, we want to, people to have free access up and down the river. Uh, we're not infringing on the rights of the bridge company to have access across the river. but, but Because in often reserve, the, the, the river was low enough to walk across. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, uh, or or to run cattle across or, or whatever yeah, yeah. else. So, uh, so Compton went out and enforced uh, the ordinance, and so the Waco Bridge Company sued Compton and the city of Waco um, uh, to have an injunction placed. Well, the lower court uh, put the injunction in place, uh, but ultimately um, Compton et al. versus uh, the Waco Bridge Company went to the uh, Texas Supreme Court, and the Texas Supreme Court overturned it. Um, years after Compton was out of office, yeah. by the way, overturned it uh, and said that the city could have, you know, they could control the reserve area that goes on to be the reservation, uh, that they could control that area and that the bridge company uh, couldn't stop them from doing that. Mm-hmm. So Compton's name appears, you know, when I got into law enforcement, I was always told you never want your name on a Supreme Court case <laughs> uh, because it's there's no there's no good way to get there. Uh, but uh, we found that uh, while we were looking at Compton's records, and um, he had, he had represented the city, and that was that was part of the gig. Still is today, as a matter of fact. Yeah, you can be sued personally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you see old pictures of the bridge, you can see the fences that they put up on either side of the bridge to try to control. Yeah. Any sort of access to that hard rock crossing underneath the bridge. I mean, they were very aggressive at trying to protect their franchise. Hey. There. Yeah. 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 Trying to run a business, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, through time, you know, so Compton is the, um, is the marshal from 1871 through 1880 ish. There are some, there's some records of some folks. Uh, I guess they were maybe brothers, John Moore and Luke Moore, um, they were policemen, and occasionally they'd step in as as the marshal. I'm assuming, you know, if you were off on vacation or got <laughs> sick, right, uh, they had to right. have somebody function as the um, as the marshal because in the at the at that day and time, the mayor was a magistrate. Uh, the mayor was a judge, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. we have a book of uh, special mayor's hearings, um, and it was a lot of times it was simple stuff of uh, you know somebody shooting a gun inside the city limits or assaulting somebody, a simple assault or a simple theft or something. And the mayor was the judge. And so the, um, the, the marshal was the person on all those documents who had to either receive the fine or ensure the person was in jail or carry out whatever the sentence was. And, mm-hmm. and most of the time those were sort of, uh, you know, petty crimes that, that the mayor saw. We have to assume that the significant crimes went to the county uh, court in the district courts. Um, so you, you had to have a marshal to, to support the mayor's, uh, court, so to speak. And it wasn't until the, 
uh, the later version of the charter that that you see the mayor stop doing uh, those court cases. Mm-hmm. So. Interesting. Yeah, really interesting. And, yeah. and you see that in in all of those um, handwritten documents that it, it clearly, certainly in the 1850s, these were just people who happened to live in the same place and they were just trying to cobble together the, they were making it up as they went along. Literally yeah. making it up. They're trying to cobble together government based right. on what they've heard about <laughs> in the East. Yeah. Um, and 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 you kind of get that sense as you're reading those handwritten notes mm-hmm. that they're just doing the best they can. And there were a number of them where they were like, you know, we're here to 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 install a new alderman because the last guy lasted two meetings. Right. Um, right, right. And uh, and there are some significant names, you know, there's a lot of streets named after those original folks yeah. around, um, and, and some fought in the Confederacy and some fought in the union ultimately. Yeah. Um, uh, but that was, that was the context mm-hmm. uh, at the time they were just, these were human beings trying to, yeah. to put together a government as best they could. And it really shines through those, those handwritten documents. Mm. So. So you mentioned he has a long tenure. Yep. Uh, and then who, who follows them? So kind of, Alfred Neal follows uh, him, and that's who we thought originally was the first chief of police. And we actually have photos of Alfred Neal. Of we have photos of all the chiefs after Alfred Neal. Okay. Alfred Neal, best best I can find, he comes in about 1888. Okay. Um, and and he was uh, in 1886. He was listed as the street commissioner. So he had already been in city service, makes the transition somewhere between 1886 and mm-hmm. 1888 um, to be the marshal. Uh, and Alfred Alfred C. Neal stays as the, the marshal through 1894. A guy named uh, Sam Hall uh, becomes marshal in, in, in 1895, and he stays through 1897. Uh, a guy named M.P. Waddell. 1897 to 1899. So these are, you know, two, three, five year sort mm-hmm. of tenures. Um, and then John Dollins um, become, and, and he was kind of a local name, 1899 to 1907. So okay. he's turn of the century. Yeah. Um, a lot of really interesting things happen in Waco at the turn of the century, like the suspension bridge and the, uh, the Washington street bridge a, a couple of years later, uh, yeah. after the turn of the century, really a lot of, as we've talked about, a lot of the buildings, the classic buildings in downtown. Yes. I mean, now we're starting yeah. to hit those golden years of, 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 uh, the city growing. Mm-hmm. And I bet meet, we, I bet we get motorized under his tenure as well. Yeah, you, you do start seeing, I've seen, uh, photos certainly in the early 1900s of, motorization of both police and fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we start seeing some of the uh, fire apparatus being uh, driven by by uh, steam uh, instead of horses uh, for a long time there. Mm-hmm. Um, up through the 1920s, uh, Waco PD was one of the first agencies in the South to have motorcycles. <laughs> um, and we've got some really interesting pictures of some very early uh, motorcycles that, that you, know, you kind of see in the old Harley Davidson um, kind of thing, but real sparse, uh, build, uh, you know, real early motors, uh, in the early 1900s. And, and some of these folks, um, you know, you're talking about a time period when, uh, you know, so Lawrence Sullivan Ross had become the governor at the turn of the century. And so you're still talking about, I mean, it's still kind of the old West, even though you're Mm -hmm. starting to see motorization of things and, 
um, you know, Camp MacArthur comes in in, in 1917 or 1918 for the First World War. And so that's when you really start seeing changes in things. And and that's a burden on the police department, too. Mm-hmm. So when you get uh, those flying machines in Waco, you know, they've got to they've got to manage that and and the cars and, and boats. And uh, you all have had a number of um, podcasts talking about the river mm-hmm. and what was going on on the river. And mm-hmm. so that was all the purview of the local police department. And um, occasionally some of these folks would go on to be uh, mayor. They'd stay in, in, you know, public service, but a lot of them just go back to their lives. R.D. Compton, who we were talking about, he ends up moving away and gets killed in a train crash in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, a number of years later in his retirement. And so they mm-hmm. just, you know, they were, they had a job, then they, they became marshal and then they quit being marshal and went back to their, to their, to their lives, mm-hmm. um, returned to the regular citizenry and, and rode off into the sunset. Yeah, I think Dollins, who you mentioned a minute ago, later became mayor. Yes, if I remember, I believe that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mayor, he became mayor in 1916. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and some other folks you recognize Hollis Baron, Guy McNamara, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which I believe is, uh, Parnell's, uh, grandfather or great grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, Lee His Jenkins, F.B. McCall, Hollis Baron. Uh, you really start getting, into um, that time period when civil service came in mm-hmm. in, the, in the 40s uh, with, you know, Red Burton was the, uh, who had been uh, the ranger and he comes back to Waco and he becomes the police chief. They said he, he became the chief of detectives and then uh, chief of police, ironically with uh, Wiley Stem Sr. Wiley Stem Sr. was chief of detectives and mm-hmm. uh, about that time too. So they, they crossed paths a number of times during, during their career. Uh, um, a J.V. Gunterman and Calvert, and then a guy named A.J. Rosnovsky, uh, Al Rosnovsky, he became uh, the chief in 1975. And when I um, took the oath of office for chief of police, Al sent me a card, uh, <laughs> one of the first people wow. to send me a card and uh, sort of wish me the best and, you know, tell me the, you know, heavy is the, the, the head, it carries the mantle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just, and I, and I still have that card. I cherish it. Mm. Um, and, and a series of, of chiefs since then, since, uh, since Al, you had Larry Scott and Gilbert Miller, Gilbert Miller came from Austin. Uh, he was really the first chief to bring, uh, neighborhood policing mm-hmm. in, into effect, mm-hmm. uh, in the, in the early nineties, um, in, in Waco crack cocaine hit, uh, in the mid nineties. And so you had, uh, some years where we had 32 murders a year and it was, it was really a lot of violence on the street. Um, but under, under Gill's, uh, leadership, uh, we instituted, um, sort of that old school neighborhood policing, um, Al Mellis, uh, who had came from Florida, carried that on. And then of course, uh, Brent Stroman was the chief for, uh, for several years, uh, a little over a decade, I believe. And then I had the pleasure of, of serving after Brent and, um, and then uh, now Chief Victorian, so who is just, um, you know, uh, carries charisma around in buckets and is <laughs> just fantastic. Uh, she's brilliant. Um, I couldn't be more pleased that that she's our chief and she carries on a legacy of a lot of a lot of folks before her mm-hmm. um, and a lot of really good men and women serve in the Waco Police Department. They serve they 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 go on more than 100,000 calls for service a year. Um, and so, um, they, you know, they really do the things and a lot of times they do it quietly, mm-hmm. um, and they interface mm-hmm. more than ever. They're interfacing with our, our community. 
um, and and making sure that that those interactions are positive interactions. It hasn't always been that way. We mm-hmm. you know we're um, we learned early on that when you put on the uniform, you take on the the sins of the of the forefathers because uh, when people come here from other countries, they only know police the way they yeah. do them in their country. Yeah. And a lot of times those are federalized law enforcement. And so uh, a whole different way of doing things and, mm-hmm. and really fear and intimidation. Uh, for, and so it's easy to understand why um, I was often asked, you know, well, uh, about serving the community. And I always say, well, which community? Yeah. Because it turns out Waco is a lot of communities that happen to all live in the same place. Mm-hmm. And so you have to you have to interface with those communities a little bit differently. How, you know, the old saying, meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what it takes today is to meet people where they are, how they need law enforcement, uh, how they need peace officers, um, mm-hmm. and be there to protect them and, and hold people accountable, hold ourselves accountable. Um, and, uh, it's, you know, it, it really has changed since the early days, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, but there's still that connection. There's that thread that goes back to, um, the old West. Mm-hmm. Okay. So today the police is headquartered. You got the, you got the tower mm-hmm. over by where the old Hillcrest hospital used to be. Yep. 3115 Pine. How many stories is that tower? It's 11 stories. Uh, my understanding is that the first Four floors were built in 1971-ish. Okay. Uh, and then they came back and added the top six stories. First four floors are poured-in-place concrete. The top uh, six stories are pure tension or t- post-tension right. uh, concrete. Um, and so when we we bought it as a uh, as part of a bond package, mm-hmm. uh, it was the 07 bond package. We ended up moving in in 2013, um, and we were able to consolidate uh, all but one unit of the police department in the tower. Hmm. We had been spread out on a, at a number of the former headquarters was at 721 North 4th. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now is the IT department and the emergency operations center. So that building is still serving. Yeah. And before that, the, uh, the police department was on the top floor of city hall. And so the current city hall that is there now uh, built in the twenties, uh, used to be the jail on the top floor. The Sally Port was on the Washington Street side. They would drive the car down. The ramp is still there, but you obviously you can't get a car in there anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they had a special elevator that only went to the fourth floor. And so you would take your prisoner in there and go straight up to the fourth floor. And uh, I have heard stories of, of people who are still around today who can remember prisoners hanging out of the out of the windows at City Hall and hollering at people around the square. Um, uh, one of the commanders who, who was there when I started, uh, would tell me stories when he was a rookie 40 years before that, right. um, that they would pour their own bullets using, uh, <laughs> lead and, you know, the molds in the yeah. basement of then city hall. So you can imagine the lead they were exposed to. Um, and, and then before that, uh, the same thing was in the previous city hall before that they had a jail there, uh, the city yeah. hall that burned at the same location, sort of at the same location. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the police department had been many places, but they're, you know, that's so, the history. So with the tower that's there now, I mean, t- tell us how many officers you have, sure. but then the support staff it takes yeah, as absolutely. well. Cause that's, that's. Yeah, so they're they're right at 290 sworn positions now, uh, and and in the past couple of decades, we've had about 100 civilians in the building too. So you have around 400 employees in the building that it takes to make it run. You have 
you know, on the civilian side, uh, all of the dispatch center is civilian. So when you dial 911 uh, from anywhere except other cities in McLennan County, the call goes to the tower. The main, the main public safety answering point for 911 is in that tower. Uh, and, and Waco dispatches for both Waco PD and McLennan County Sheriff's Office out of the same spot. Uh, so they, they talk to each other while they're, you know, because we overlap. And so you have uh, the dispatch center, your other civilians, there are uh, a lot of civilians in the records section, property room, impound lot. Uh, we civilianized under, uh, under Gil Miller, I believe, we civilianized crime scene investigation. So, uh, you know, people used to watch uh, CSI Las Vegas, um, kind of the same thing. We have some really great mm-hmm. civilians that go get uh, forensic degrees and come to work in crime scene. Uh, when I first started, they were making that transition uh, and they still had what they called special investigators uh, who were sworn officers and they would go to the scene and lift fingerprints and work the hard, you know, the murder scenes, and right. those, uh, sexual assaults and those sorts of things. Uh, but we were early adopters, thanks to the leaders we had at the time of, of putting those officers back on the street and putting civilians in those roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Waco's kind of been ahead of the curve in that way uh, of civilianizing those positions. Um, and because they, they can go get, you know, very specific degrees and, right, uh, right. and whereas the police officers are generalists. Right. Um, and a little, have to do a little bit of everything. They got to be and psychologists and social workers. And, and you know, they, most they, of them are going into the trade because they yeah. want, they want the action that's associated with yeah. being a police officer. Not the number one answer. Uh, and I said, in on a lot of interviews, I hired a lot of police officers and the number one answer that we heard in every one of them was I want to help people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, um, now they don't always know what that means when they're getting into it and it, right. and it can change when you get out and you see, you know, I, I think we were having a conversation the other day about most people who commit crimes have just made a mistake of some sort. Uh, it's a very small percentage of people who are, are, you know, out to get other human beings. And so the good news is that most of the people police officers deal with, they're good folks. They just, mm-hmm. they've just made a mistake. Uh, but there are occasionally, and y'all have talked about them on this podcast and on the Crossroads podcast, you know, the serial killers and those, and those, those folks have come through Waco or been in Waco. Yeah. And so, um, the department has to be prepared for that as well. So it's a spectrum they have to be prepared for. Um, but, um, yeah, they've about, about 400 employees over there now, um, working around, around a hundred thousand calls for service. And once the call's over, that's not the end of it. Then you've got detective units that have got to do something with that case. Um, and, and their whole job mm-hmm. is to work on behalf of the victim and on behalf of, of the state, so to speak, and present a good case to the district attorney's office. And people underestimate that relationship that's needed with the district attorney's office, because ultimately right. they and the grand juries um, decide what cases will go forward or not. Mm-hmm. And, and it's always been that way. Uh, you can, mm-hmm. you can go back in historical documents and, uh, the district attorney, uh, or the prosecutors, uh, really dictated to the police, uh, means and methods and, uh, you know, what, what's legal and not legal and, uh, how to, how to investigate crimes and what the needs are to get uh, convictions because the need to get convictions today are a lot different than they were, uh, even 15 years ago. Yeah. 
early so, in your career. Yeah. yeah. So police have to adapt to that, have always had to adapt to that. So I'm going to give you both a little insight into the nature of podcasting. I've learned this uh, in my few years podcasting. So some podcast episodes will get you like from here to Temple. Uh, generally, the Waco History Podcast will get you from North Dallas to Waco as far as in length of a podcast episode. So I will say former Chief Holt, uh, current uh, Assistant City Manager Holt, is too interesting for one podcast episode. And so I'm going to ask you here on the record if you'll come back because I've got more questions. On the record. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Well, I, 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 I'd like to call this part one. Can right. we call this part one then, Absolutely. Rick? Are you, are you game well, you, on this part one? <clears throat> Because I have a lot of questions. That well, you can't call it part two, obviously, because it's well, the first one. Yeah, so, well, sure. I, but I don't want to cut him off. I mean, do you want to cut him off? No, it's too, it's too interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I, I think we'll we'll call this part one. I want to thank you for first off all the research you've done. I mean, that is so beneficial to understand the history sure. of of this. Uh, I mean, of this essential service to the city and the way in which. It's interwoven with the history of this place that we try to explore through the podcast. And so we'll call that the end of part one, and we'll pick up with part two. And you, you did a get, great job of getting us up to now, and, and you had to do a leap to do this. <laughs> but we're going to start out part two by going back because right. there's some things I, I really want to ask about even the late 19th century and as it transitions to the 20th and get into your career a little sure. bit more and some of the ch changes that you've seen. So th thanks for joining us again, as you've, if you've, you've just on the record committed to do. Absolutely. Awesome. I appreciate the, appreciate the opportunity to, to come and talk about what I think is a, is a noble profession. Um, now hasn't, hasn't necessarily always represented that way, but, but still, you know, uh, we, we need to look at the history. So we sometimes, so we don't repeat it. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, proud of where they are now. That's mm -hmm. been really enlightening. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.